From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello, welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and, and we're honored that you're joining us today. Now, in each show, we try to make sure we share some great information uh, with you, either about the investment fundamentals or some great investment ideas. And we're hoping today's show on alternative investments will get you anxious to hear more on this topic. And uh, we are going to do several more shows uh, on a little bit more detail on various uh, alternative investments. So hopefully this show will inspire you to say, yep, this is stuff I need to hear more about. And today we will have a special guest, Matthew Tuttle, who wrote one of the best-known books on this particular topic. And hopefully uh, he will share some um, of the great, great news in that book. We actually covered several alternative investments on prior shows. Now, at that time, we didn't call them alternative investments. We didn't focus on that aspect. So with that, you may not have noticed that's what we were talking about. Let me remind you what they were. There were two kind of overall topics. One was direct investment in real estate. And uh, there we actually covered four different topics, and they were the different types of owning and loaning alternatives with direct investments in real estate. Now, do you remember what they were? I'll refresh your memory. Rental properties, fix and flip, uh, lease option, and then, of course, the uh, loaning alternative, which is private mortgage lending. All of them are alternative investments. Then second category was managed Futures, which we covered fairly recently with uh, Tom Foreman. So we've actually covered five alternatives, four of them are real estate related, and the fifth was managed futures. So if you listen to the details on those shows, you may recall that managed futures are actually a subset of a category referred to as hedge funds. Today is December 10th in 2012. It is 9.02 a.m. in Phoenix, Arizona, 11.02 on the East Coast, and 5.02 p.m. In continental Europe. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. I certainly hope you join us each time we air, but if you happen to miss a show, and I don't know why you would want to, but if you did, you can go back and re-listen to those uh, shows as well, those five to six shows we had on alternative investments I mentioned. You can hear them on the archives, and that is WealthDNA.us, where we list each of them uh, the show's upcoming and archive. Now, for those of you curious about the U.S. equity markets after a rather bathtub-shaped week, the uh, U.S. market's off basically with a flat start. They've been going nowhere today. That's pretty normal. They tend to be down, if anything, on a Monday. Asia was up very nicely. Europe was flat, or it still is flat. Brazil and Mexico up pretty nicely. Now, if you're wondering why you might be interested in hearing about alternative investments today, let me give you a hint. Some of the best-performing investment funds, and I'm not talking about over the last year or two. I'm talking about 10, 20, 50, and even 100 years have been the major university endowment funds. Now, if you compare their portfolios to the average investor's IRA or 401k, and this could even be your own, you would very quickly see how they differ. 
And no, I'm not just talking about the number of zeros in their total assets. I'm talking about the composition of their portfolio. You see, the average investor might target to have 70% in equities, 30% in bonds and cash. These endowments often have 40% in alternative investments and only 60% in traditional financial securities. So you may recall a uh, comment and uh, chart that Tom Foreman shared with us during the show on Managed Futures. It was about the efficient frontier of risk and return. Now, most financial advisors won't show you the version that Tom showed us since they don't offer alternative investments, so they don't want you to be curious about what they are. Now, as regular listeners already know, the Wealth DNA radio show informs you of investments no one else wants you to know about. Well, I think that's a pretty good lead-in to our topic today, alternative investments. And time to bring on our special guest, Matthew Tuttle of Tuttle Wealth Management. He's based in Stamford, Connecticut, where I spent actually a fair amount of time early in my career with Xerox Corp. He is the, a money manager. He's a certified financial planner and author of How Harvard and Yale Beat the Market. Talk about two large university endowment funds. You may even have seen him or heard him on Fox Business News, CNBC, Fox News, or read his frequent commentaries in major financial media publications. Let's give Matthew a warm welcome. Well, welcome, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, and thank you for taking the time to meet uh, with me and with our listeners. Uh, I think we've got a great topic lined up for them, so I do appreciate your time. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background. Tell us a little more about your background and the company you founded. Sure. So I've been in financial services since 1991, um, have an MBA in finance, a CFP, like I think you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, started off, worked for a couple of the big brokerage firms that are no longer with us, um, not my fault, <laughs> just, just the nature of the industry and, and the way that uh, tends to work out. Um, really was disillusioned by the fact that, you know, the the brokerage firms are such a sales-based culture. It's not about the client, not about making the client money. So I left, um, went to work for a couple of insurance companies. It was the same problem, um, just a different angle. And in 2003, went out and, uh, and formed my own company, Tuttle Wealth Management. And then this year formed a second company, Tuttle Tactical Management, because we were just getting a lot of demand from other wealth managers out there uh, to, mm. to have access to our investment stuff. So we formed the second company to manage money solely for other wealth managers all over the country. Very interesting. I wasn't aware of the Tuttle uh, Tactical. That's interesting. Okay, so yeah, I've learned something already. Now, you've mentioned one of the aspects, but when investors consider various financial advisors, now, when would they want to consider working with your company versus, let's say, some of those big-name advisors, uh, big-name companies that are around still? Uh, might it be you know minimum net worth or, or uh, some sort of uh, amount of investment uh, uh, generating assets that uh, they would, you know, cross a certain level want to come to you, or is it an income age category? I mean, how would you describe uh, when, you know, a, a client might want to consider talking to your company versus those big guys? Sure. It, it has nothing to do with net worth, age, or or anything. What it's got to do with is is really a difference in 
fundamental philosophy. So, you know, the investment industry, the financial planning industry has become commoditized where just about everybody is out there with the same kind of asset allocation, modern portfolio theory, buy and hold advice, Mm -hmm. which I would argue not only doesn't work, but has never worked. It appears to work when the market's mm-hmm. going up, but you know, so does a monkey's throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal. So our philosophy is much more tactical, where we try to be in harmony with the markets, and we are much more focused on avoiding the large loss. To me, there are four things that can happen when you invest. You can make a lot. You mm-hmm. can make a little. You can lose a little or you can lose a lot. And right. our philosophy says if you can take lose a lot off the table, over time you're going to do great. And Absolutely. with kind of the, the big boys, the traditional you know, financial people out there, all four of those things are on the table. So it really comes down to philosophy. If somebody doesn't mind riding the market up and riding the market down, then, you know, hey, the big brokerage firms, the big financial planners, that's fine. If someone says, you know, hey, I I don't want to ride the market down, uh, you know, I don't mind grabbing most of that upside, but, I, you know, I don't want all the downside, then that's when they should look at, at, at what we're doing. Okay. Now, before I forget, how would listeners get to know more about your company or be in touch with you? Uh, what's the best way to contact you? Um, well, we've got a website, TuttleWealth.com. Um, certainly anyone can send me an email. That's mtuttle at TuttleWealth.com. Um, and, you know, and like you said, on our website, we've got links to a lot of different reports and research mm-hmm. and my blog and, you know, a whole bunch of um, good information about kind of tactical alternative types of investing. Okay, and Tuttle has two T's in the middle for those, so uh, Matthew Tuttle is kind of a symmetrical name, uh, two T's in the middle of Matthew and in the middle of Tuttle. So just uh, from a spelling viewpoint, make sure to make that pretty clear to our listeners. Now, yeah, one of the thanks. key reasons I absolutely wanted to get you on this show is you wrote one of the best-known books on alternative investments. What inspired you to take on that major project while you're running a company and working with clients? I mean, that is that is a major time uh, uh, drain, if you will. Um, but, you know, what what inspired you? Well, there are really two things. Number one, we are—we really see ourselves as crusaders against the traditional, as you probably heard, uh, you know, the uh, conviction in my voice when mm-hmm. I was talking about it. But you know, the conventional buy and hold modern portfolio theory investment strategies that everyone is kind of exposed to is this is the only way to do it. Right. And you know, I really want to show people no it's not the only way to do it there are other ways that's number one number two i read david swenson's book he's the guy who runs the yale endowment and you know they've had an amazing track record over the years so i was really excited to read his book and get some great insights and basically the book said you know, you're an individual investor. You can't do what I do, so just go back to the buy and hold and buy some index funds. <laughs> so okay. I, I was pretty pissed off, and you know, I've wasted twenty five, thirty bucks, whatever, on that book. But I put it down. I said, Well, no. All right. 
you know, can an individual investor buy farmland and timber and things that, that Yale is there buying? No. Can an individual investor access some of the hedge funds Yale is accessing? Maybe not. Can mm-hmm. you do it at the same fee structure Yale is accessing? No. Well, no. You know, can you can you pick up the phone and get one of these big time portfolio managers on the phone like Swenson can? No. But is there enough out there as an individual investor of any size to construct a portfolio that at least looks a little bit like what Yale is doing and is light years better than, you know, the traditional asset allocation? Yes. So I I realized I, I have to write this book. Very good. Now, when was that book published, first published? I want to make sure that our listeners know to get perspective of time here. Yeah, so this this came out in 2009, in April mm-hmm. of 2009, which means I was basically writing it in 2008. Sure. So there there were you know a, a lot of things we had to go back and change and uh, and put in some extra paragraphs here and there as uh, mm-hmm. as the markets were crumbling as I was writing this. But uh, exactly. So about four years, just to just to put that in perspective, somebody doesn't think twenty years, or they don't think it was just released, because uh, you know occasionally we've had somebody on the show that the book is just coming out, and that's a different story because it's very very fresh, uh, and all of the information would capture you know the most the latest. But I just want to make sure that that perspective is in there. Now tell us some of the key points you hope each reader takes away from reading your book. Well, you know, really the key points are that you don't have to be stuck in the traditional asset allocation where you've got some large stocks, some small stocks, some medium stocks, some international stocks, some growth and some value, and you think you're diversified. And what Mm -hmm. 2002 and 2008 taught us is that, no, I just, instead of having five diversified asset classes or six diversified asset classes, I just had five or six different ways to lose money. Mm -hmm. You know, one might have been down 25% when the market was down 30 and you've got a portfolio manager saying, hey, look at me, look at me. I only lost 25 and the market lost 30, thinking that's actually good. And that's another thing I want people to understand. No, that's not good. You know, beating right. the market is, is is one thing, but, you know, if, if I if I beat it because I only lost 25 and the market lost 30, that's not a good thing. Correct. So there, right. I mean, a loss is a loss. There, there are other things out there, you know, whether it's managed futures, which you talked about that mm-hmm. I, I just love, whether it's different types of alternative investments, hedge fund type strategies, or purely just tactical strategies that truly are not correlated with the traditional stocks that can protect investors from the downside of the market while still being able to make money on the upside. Mm-hmm. Okay. As traditional, uh, and as a matter of fact, I was surprised you didn't use a phrase that uh, one of the syndicated radio hosts uses uh, for buy and hold. He uses hold and hope. I thought that's well, a great yeah, phrase. I talk about buy and hope a lot, too. <laughs> okay. Now, one of the major financial magazines, I don't remember if it was Forbes or Fortune, one of those guys, reviewed your book, and they said they were disappointed since the key summary is that it's not possible for the average investor to duplicate the results that these uh, major endowments have. And you touched on some of the reasons. Now, how would you, uh, or maybe how did you, respond to that uh, comment? 
Well, how I would is quite simply that it's it's not true. Now, you know, again, some of the things they invest in, can I invest in them? No. But right. as an average investor, I can be nimble. I can be truly tactical, meaning I can go from 100% stocks to 100% cash in a matter of seconds. Right. If you know, if the market is crashing and the time to do that is now. And I can shift the other way. I can go from 100% cash to 100% stocks in seconds and anything in between. The problem these big endowments have is they can't. It's no, like trying to the stop the Titanic. Right. They're, they're just too big. And all of these hedge funds that they're into typically are going to have lockups, so I mean, and you know they're in all these illiquid private equity deals. So you know when they're when they're in stuff, when they're invested, they're pretty much stuck. Very so true. either they've got to be right for you know pretty much the intermediate to long term, or else they've got a problem. An individual investor, you can move on a dime. Okay, very very good commentary. And as you said already, that uh, obviously adding some alternative investments is part of the picture. You may not be able to do the exact same things. Now, the other thing I want to make sure our listeners don't walk away with that review being negative. Because let me share the flip side. It is not easy to get those major magazines, the uh, shows, uh, to, to notice a book, an article, or a radio show. And I look forward, actually, to them criticizing or commenting on something we did say or didn't say on this radio show. So uh, that is not a negative comment. It is just, uh, you know, they, they noticed the book. That is great news to me. Uh, I think, you know, that's something to be proud of. Now, Matthew, Matthew, before we dig into some specifics, why is it that other institutional investors, now I'm talking life insurance companies, investment funds, uh, which, of course, in the U.S. we call mutual funds, uh, the pension funds, or even, let's take my worst example, Social Security, uh, lags the results that somebody like a Harvard or Yale, they don't have those same limitations uh, that an individual investor would have. Why do they lag? They have self-imposed limitations. The way the whole investment industry is set up, it's not set up to make the individual investor money. It's set mm -hmm. up to make the investment industry money and it's set up so that the individual investor, if they lose money, has a very tough time suing. You know, I, I do a lot of expert witness work and, you know, as well. So, I, I mean, I see kind of both sides of it. So what you end up happening is you've got all these money managers, mutual funds, you know, whatever they are, who are basically just closet indexers. So... Mm -hmm. They will, let's say their style is large cap value and their benchmark is going to be the S&P 500, you know, large cap value index. Right. They're going to pretty much mirror that index because they're afraid to deviate from it. And mm -hmm. if they decide, you know, hey, we like technology, so we're going to overweight technology and our index is 13% technology, well, we're going to go out on a limb and we're going to have 14% technology because <laughs> we really like it. And, right. and we hate consumer discretionary, so our index is 10%. We're going to go to 9 mm -hmm. And, you know, that's going to be so great. So w w what happens is you add their fee on top of it, 
not only do they lag the endowments, but they they lag their index. You know, there are thousands of mutual funds. Very few of them are any good. And a lot of the ones that are good are basically just because that money manager got into some sort of methodology that during the time period you're looking at was in favor. Right. And right, once right. that yeah, you know, once that methodology goes out of favor, then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like Bill Miller, like Mason Value Trust, mm-hmm. you know, great track record, then your methodology goes out of favor and kaboom. Yeah, exactly. I should remind our listeners, you're too tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Narakin. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you've missed prior shows, like earlier ones on real estate or management futures, you'd want to re-listen to them. We maintain an archive on wealthdna.us. Now, if you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or of course both. Just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. US. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or in the upper left-hand uh, corner of the screen, just under the Boomer and the Babes picture, follow the. Uh, there's a follow button. Just go ahead and click on there, and they will keep you posted. Now, reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you. Uh, that is to you, the listeners, to ask questions. Either start a chat in the area below the uh, radio player, and I'll, I'll forewarn you, and I guess I forget to mention to people, yeah, you just have to log in to the, uh, just register for the site, uh, the uh, Blog Talk Radio site, and then once you have a uh, log and you can put in comments anytime and in that chat window we'll keep an eye on it and answer those questions or you can call in 917-388-4162 and that number is at the top of the screen so you'll remember it and today we're talking to matthew tuttle and we're talking about alternative investments and we just talked about a little bit of a background so uh, i guess uh, matthew it's time we define what are alternative investments and uh, how would you explain them to our listeners Sure. So in my definition, it's probably a little bit different than the textbook definition in that I look at anything that's not kind of traditional buy and hold mm-hmm. as an alternative investment. So, you know, that could include tactical, it could include managed futures, it could include hedge funds, private equity. Um, the more textbook definition would be kind of hedge funds, private equity, and managed futures Mm -hmm. where people need to be an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser to get into. But to me, I I think it's broader than that. It's anything that's just not the traditional buy and hold, not the traditional large cap growth fund, large cap value fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess it, you, I'd be partially correct if I said these are investments. Occasionally, I'll give kind of that quick answer, which is that uh, they're investments that are an alternative to what we could buy in Wall Street or City of London or French Bourse, depending where uh, we invest, uh, that are offered to the individual investors. So that'd be kind of a, a semi-correct, and, and, and clearly that would include some things that you would um, uh, still include in traditional buy and hold, and it would uh, probably miss some things that could be in that category. Am I correct on that? Sure. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. A reasonable, a reasonable kind of a first, first, uh, first pass uh, definition. But uh, that's really what we're getting at. Uh, I want to make sure our listeners know we're talking about things other than just playing the typical stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, or, or or ETFs that uh, you know are offered uh, through the um, uh, Wall Street firms, uh, but at the same time uh, being more flexible. So actually, in your definition, uh, things like direct investment in real estate might not be a typical. Uh, 
uh, might might be more typical because it is a buy and hold type of a well, uh, investment no, for the I, most part. You know, I, I would include that in there. When I'm thinking mm-hmm. okay. of buy and hold, I'm thinking of you know the traditional Wall Street mantra okay. of you know some large cap growth, large cap value, small cap international, and some bonds. And then the Wall Street broker is going to tell you to buy okay. REITs versus direct investments right. because you know, they don't make That's money if you go to a realtor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, hopefully you heard that, uh, we have actually covered direct investments in real estate. We focused on the residential side, uh, both the owning and loaning uh, alternatives, and we also had um, a, a sh- kind of introductory show on, on hedging so that people knew what we were at least talking about if they weren't familiar with it, as well as managed futures. Now, my goal with this show is to kick off a series of uh, five shows on alternative investments. Now, is there some way we can classify these alternative investments into, let's say, four, five, or six major categories uh, to, to help us put that series together. I'm, I'm thinking so something like real estate and hedge funds. Uh, you know, what what would some of those categories be? Well, yeah, and there may be more than five or six, but certainly okay. what comes to mind, you mentioned real estate is certainly one. Now, within real estate, again, you'd mention it, there are a bunch of subcategories. Correct. But real estate, I would definitely look at as an alternative investment. Managed futures is another. Mm-hmm. Certainly look at that as an alternative investment. Hedge funds have a ton of subcategories. Correct. I would certainly look at that as is um, an alternative investment. You mentioned Tactical, venture capital would be another one, right? Venture capital and private equity, which you could mm-hmm. either separate or, or put together. Um, tactical strategies or another. Um, you may even want to throw in mutual funds that follow hedge fund-like strategies, depending okay, on how granular one. you want to get there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, okay, and I like point. to throw that in just because you know, a lot of your listeners may not be able to access hedge funds or may not be able to access the good ones Sure. You know, there's still a bunch of mutual funds out there that are that are fairly decent that you know follow hedge fund like strategies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we've got a whole new category recently introduced by the government, but as, as usual, government things they've introduced the concept, but they haven't defined it, which is uh, crowdfunding. Would you fit that into alternative investments? Again, a very new category. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely it's something I would fit into alternative investments, kind of in the the private equity venture capital, mm-hmm. you know, granularity. Um right. certainly something that I would be careful with. I mean, there's there's a double-edged sword here where I I'm not a big fan of the regulations that've gotten alternative investments. I, right. I think in a lot of ways they're protecting individual investors from making money. Than, mm-hmm. than anything else, but then, you know, you, you kind of get something new out there, and it starts off as the wild, wild west. I know there was just, I just read an article last week about some big crowdfunding scam where, you know, people got taken in. It turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. So I, I, I think with anything here, you've just got to be really careful and really do your homework, and if it sounds too good to be true, you know, the old saying, it probably it is. is. 
It is. It is. How about commodities and currencies? Now, they've traditionally been available through separately licensed brokers. And when I first looked into trying to do uh, some currency uh, trading and, and hedging, I needed to you know, be in a major city, which I wasn't. I was in Europe at the time, and I couldn't easily set up accounts there. Uh, would you fit them into alternative investments as well? I would definitely fit them into alternative investments. Um, there's a bunch of ways to use them um, from the simple way of you could just buy some commodity and currency mm-hmm. mutual funds and hold on to them, which I wouldn't do, but you could. Mm-hmm. And it would diversify a portfolio uh, you know, a little bit. Um, my favorite way to access commodities and currencies would be through managed futures. Mm-hmm. And okay. you know, my other favorite way to, is you know, some sort of tactical strategy that can move around to the different commodities and currencies, maybe through ETFs or mutual funds. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. however you decide to access commodities and currencies, I would categorize that as an alternative investment, and I think it's something that should be a part of, of, you know, just about everybody's portfolio. Excellent. Okay, let's dig into the major endowment funds, and, and, and obviously Harvard and Yale, since that's uh, it, your your book title. Uh, what are the most heavily weighted alternative investments in their portfolio, or is it fairly spread out among all of those categories? They spread it out fairly well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they tend to put in a lot of commodities, a lot of private equity, a lot of real estate which you know makes it really different than the average investor's portfolio but because they're not nimble they really can't and because of their mandate i mean they're trying to avoid large losses sure. they've got to keep it fairly evenly spread so they'll they'll all come out with kind of their forecast of what each asset class is going to be um, but they're going to keep it fairly spread around. The one area they don't usually invest much of anything in mm-hmm. is fixed income, which, again, makes it real different than the average investor. The average investor looks to reduce risk by adding in fixed income and bonds and stuff, where the endowment looks to reduce risk by adding in negatively correlated assets. Very interesting. I I wasn't aware of that. And and so what that says is the fixed income being the largest category means that the other, uh, you know, funds like that we talked about earlier, the the pension plans and and of course Social Security, uh, it's a very specific category to the extent they do any investing. Uh, and the insurance companies are the ones, uh, as well as private investors, that are are using those uh, fixed uh, fixed income instruments. That's very very interesting. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it makes it real hard for them to make any money at these right. interest rates. But what it also sets up, we are at some point, because we've been in a massive bull market in bonds for exactly. for a while. And for that to continue, interest rates have to keep going down. I don't know how you get much lower than zero. Um, there may be a way. <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet. but um, So at some point, we are going to be in a bond bear market. The endowments will be fine because they won't be in the bonds. The people are going to get hurt are the people who thought that they had this great risk reduction thing in their portfolio called the bond, and all of a sudden it's down 10 or 15%, and they can't figure out why this supposedly risk-free asset has lost so much money. 
I'm glad you brought that up. I, one, because I forewarned our, our listeners about that uh, potential bubble there. Secondly, uh, I didn't trigger that. I didn't ask you that question directly, in which case, uh, you know, might have been prompting you to to come up with that response. So glad to glad to hear that. I just want to make sure our listeners are aware that you brought that up without any prompting from me. So we I, yeah, independently have the prompting. same view. Yeah, no, I don't need any prompting on that. That's um, that's a topic right now that's near and dear to my heart because 2008 was bad, but when I invest in stocks, I've got to understand I'm taking risk. When the bond bubble bursts, it's going to be 100 times worse because it's going to hit people that didn't understand they were taking risk and didn't understand how much risk they were taking and can't afford to take that hit. Exactly. In other words, I was earning only 2%, but the reason I was doing it was because of low risk, and all of a sudden I'm I'm, I'm losing money on top of my 2% uh, minimal income there. Now, how long have the endowments invested in alternative investments? I mean, one of the things I want to make sure our listeners know that this didn't start just before you wrote your book. Uh, you know what? What kind of time frame when they started? Uh, you know, focusing on these uh, these investments. Oh, I mean, you're you're talking about you know really since well not since the inception of alternative investments, which I think was the 50s, mm-hmm. but you know really 20, 30 years, depending on the endowment, where you know when you get a lot of smart guys together and you start looking at traditional asset allocation. You know, not from a standpoint of, hey, what can we sell to individual investors, but, you know, how can we make the most money without taking a lot of risk, then, you know, that's the area you're going to gravitate towards. I like that expression. Uh, how can we make uh, more money as opposed to what can we sell to investors? I, I think I may quote you on that one. Now, compared hey, to the <laughs> okay, we'll do, I, and I will mention your name by the way. But compared to the S and P or some other metric we want to use, uh, how have they compared over, let's say, ten or twenty or fifty years? Uh, can you give our listeners a feel for for their uh, performance differential? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they and I don't have the exact numbers in front sure. of me, but they have crushed the S&P over just about any time period you want to look at, which that's good, but the better part is that they've done it with less risk, which is one thing that Wall Street tells you is not possible, right? but it, it is completely possible. It's not possible if you kind of stay within the traditional asset allocation, no. Right. I mean, more risk, more return, less risk, less return. But if you're willing to look outside of the style box, then you know more return with less risk is not only possible, it's not that hard to do. Okay, and so we're, we're, what we're saying is, is not like when a mutual fund or investment fund manager says, hey, I've outperformed the uh, S&P, my benchmark, by, uh, and he's outperformed it by 1%, and he's cooting his horn and he wants a bigger bonus. Uh, we're not talking about that kind of differential. We're talking uh, significant outperformance. We're talking significant outperformance, and plus, when you look at the mutual fund manager that's outperformed his benchmark by 1% or 2%, yeah, how much risk did he take to do that? And a lot of right. times he took a lot more risk and you know, how much kind of up and down and then, you know, by the end of the year he happened to capture an upswing and hey, look at look at this. 
Yeah, exactly. And I was going to, I was going to touch on that, uh, and I'm glad you accented that. And most of our listeners know that uh, risk is essentially volatility. It's those ups and downs that we're talking about with risk. It's not just that, uh, you know, gee, I could lose money. And it really is how much, uh, you know, does how volatile is it that defines how we measure that risk. Okay, now, are there any funds available, let's say, to accredited investors uh, that mimic uh, or, or use the same tools that uh, the, the uh, endowments do. So in other words, can, can, I, can I, as an accredited investor, invest in, uh, in the XYZ fund and it's managed in pretty much the same way as an endowment is? Yeah. yeah. I mean, typically you're going to see that in the hedge fund of funds space. Okay. And these, these are companies that aren't just one hedge fund and don't run their own hedge fund, they'll go out and they'll find you supposedly, hopefully, the best of the best. Um, Now, that industry got a big black eye with the whole Madoff thing where it turned out a bunch of these hedge fund funds were sending money to Bernie Madoff's site unseen. And, um, you know, it, it has never been the same but if you you know if you don't have a lot of money to spread around to different hedge fund managers mm-hmm. and you want to have access to you know these hedge funds you're pretty much stuck with the hedge fund to fund space if, okay. if you've got Absolutely. a lot more money then you can maybe spread you know if you've got enough to give a million here or a million there you know you can kind of create your own hedge fund to fund strategy okay all right, fair enough. Now, now that we've used that term, let me remind our listeners the definition of accredited investors, and that would be at least when we're talking about business. Obviously, institutions also can be accredited, but for an individual, it's net worth exceeding a million dollars, uh, and that excludes your personal residence. And as I recall, Matthew, it's it's two hundred thousand for an individual investor, or three hundred thousand of income for a um, a couple. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, and and some and there's all sorts of additional provisions, and if you're kind of more marginal on one of those, then reasonable expectation of the same income, a bunch of other things that you'd want to make sure that uh, you do, you do fit that definition. But uh, you do have to usually sign up that you are an accredited investor uh, for them to 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 work with you. Now, and of course, if you have a million dollars and you can put a million dollars in a hedge fund, I guess you're an accredited investor. Yeah. That you're not selling your house to do that. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons, by the way, that I mention that is that uh, our, one of our goals of our shows is we want to make sure that our um, listeners are millionaires, and uh, that's that's our goal is get more of them become millionaires if they're not already by uh, taking advantage of various investments. And it sounds like alternative investments are almost necessary to get there. And uh, there's the catch-22 of sometimes you need to be there in order to get there. Uh, so I, you know, I worry about that. So let's let's talk on the other side. How about investment funds? Uh, and again, in the U.S., we tend to call them mutual funds that are available to the average investor, those non-accredited, that uh, mimic or use the same tools. Are there some, um, uh, and, and if so, maybe even some specifics of of funds that do mimic, uh, you know, the other hedge funds or the endowments? Yeah, you know. Definitely are some, and if an individual investor, you know, the traditional investor who's maybe got $3 million or less wants mm-hmm. to create their own endowment type of portfolio, then mutual funds and ETFs are probably going to be the best way to do it. Um, more and more of these things are coming out every year. A lot of it is sizzle, with you know, sales sizzle, which you need to be real careful of. Mm-hmm. I would stick with funds that have been around where you can see 
How did they do in a down market? How did they do in 2008? How did they do in August of 2011? That type of mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, some specific ones that I know of that have been around for a while. I mean, there's PIMCO All Asset, PIMCO All Asset All Authority, BlackRock Global Allocation, IV Asset Strategy, um, Luthold Asset Allocation. I mean, those would probably be some of my favorite in the mutual fund space. Okay, very good. Now, that's one of the reasons I asked about when your book was published. Has that gotten better since your book was published in terms of the available options, especially with ETFs, because ETFs have expanded very, very rapidly uh, over the last uh, five to ten years? Uh, have they opened up the uh, the opportunity to invest in these various classes uh, much more, even since the book's been published? Oh, yeah. I mean, and in, in especially, like you mentioned, with ETFs, there is so much more out there, which, again, is somewhat of a double-edged sword because a lot of it is fairly new, and so you're not really sure you know, how, how it's going to work, how's the management, is this going to be correlated with what I have, is it not? But certainly I am, I'm happy that the investment landscape is is really growing with all sorts of different alternatives out there, and it, you know it just it opens up a whole bunch of other things. You know the investment strategy we use for clients is light years ahead of what we wrote about in the book, and a lot of that is because of what you can do now in ETFs. Exactly. Okay, and that was really a key point. I want to make sure that uh, I I knew as well. But I was assuming that was the case just because I look at you know gold and leveraged ETFs and uh, uh, you know a number of of uh, even uh, currency ETFs, a number of things that we talked about as as what alternative investments are does seem to be a lot better. But before we continue, let uh, me remind our listeners that uh, may have just tuned in. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, and if you missed. Prior shows, you can find the archive on wealthdna.us. Today, we're talking with Matthew Tuttle. We're talking about alternative investments and his book, How Harvard and Yale Beat the Market. Now, Matthew, are there some, um, sorry, let me just uh, get my uh, my notes back to here. You took took a lot of time to write this book, as I said, and, and uh uh, even while you're running a company and all those things. And I've got this personal dilemma I want to get your advice on. I'm supposed to be, and I haven't done much progress recently, writing two books on personal investing. And at the same time, I know that as I focus more time on that, it's going to slow the growth of the real estate fund I'm managing. And boy, talk about a great time to be uh, in real estate. It's now, the last four years is probably when we've struggled the most. What's your advice to me? Is it is it uh, worth taking that uh, a little bit of delay and, and going ahead and getting those books written uh, while I have the passion and the energy and the need I know is out there? Well, yeah, but, you know, to me, it it, it kind of comes down to how you're wired. Um, you, you say I spent a lot of time. I I really didn't. I wrote this book in a month and a half. Wow. Because I, okay. for whatever reason, I am able to write very quickly, and I'm very goal-oriented. So what I did mm-hmm. when I talked to the publisher is they asked me, when could you have this by? And on purpose, I chose a very short window. Sure is. Because yeah. the problem is, I, I know how my brain works. 
because I've got two other book projects that have been sitting in my inbox that have no deadline on them. They've been right. sitting in my inbox for months. I haven't gotten to them. So I knew, all right, I needed a deadline. Once I had my deadline, I put together an Excel spreadsheet that said, all right, how many words do I have to write every day? Mm-hmm. And so some days I was, re- I just felt great. I felt, you know, it's just flowing, and I would write more, which would then allow me on other days where you're just, ugh, or, you know, you're just really busy to right, allow right. me to write less. But always kind of had that goal in mind, and I came in, I think, a couple of weeks uh, ahead of time. Wow. Okay. Very, uh, very good advice. And, and I've shared in the past with uh, with listeners my definition of a goal, which is a dream with a deadline. So I guess I need to follow my own advice. Set that goal. Uh, and yeah. Just go yeah I mean, or you're going to end the... up like me with these two. I mean, I've got two really great book projects just sitting in my in basket, you know, waiting for me to start. Well, and that's kind of where where I am. I one of them, fortunately, I've got about eighty percent written. It's just a matter of now pulling it all together, and 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 if you will, gluing the the various sections together. Okay, now you ha- obviously have a number of clients, and they ask you this same question. So I'm not going to be unfair here and 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 ask you uh, to get your point of view. If we look at almost any country out there in the world, there are a number of issues and a number of opportunities facing them. Where do you see the best opportunities for good returns in the in the short term and let's say over the next five years? Uh, you know, where are you steering some of your investments today, given given all of the crazy things going on? Well, I mean, and it's a great question, and we look at it a little bit differently. Okay. We are one hundred percent tactical. Meaning that you know we'll we'll look at what's going on and you know okay. we'll try to figure out different scenarios, but we're not married to anyone because you can't mm-hmm. be because you never know. Sure. Because you know I, my answer back to that will be well, what's going to happen with the fiscal cliff? What's going to happen with Europe? There's a lot of different mm-hmm. scenarios, so you really, as an investor, need to be prepared no matter what happens. And you need to be invested kind of in harmony with where the trends are. So right now, we're sitting on a lot of cash, Mm -hmm. and our stock exposure is mostly overseas because overseas has outperformed here over the past couple of months, not based on, you know, things being better in Europe or something than they are here. They're not, but purely based on valuation. Right. where, you know, that area was undervalued. So, you know, the scenario I think that's the most likely is that we get this fiscal cliff resolved, Europe gets on a path towards sustainability where things can work, and we end up having a great bull market at some point, you know, within the next one to three years. Mm-hmm. Whether that happens or not, I mean, we'll be prepared for it because we don't buy into any one thinking. You know, it's always having different scenarios and knowing how we'll react no matter what happens. And, again, that's the benefit individual investors have over an endowment is you can be nimble. So you can go out there and say, look, I think they're going to get this fiscal cliff solved and I think we're going to enter a great bull market. But you know what? If they don't, I'm going to be ready. Got it. 
Okay, now let me ask one major scenario because it does affect even a tactical investor. Uh, there seems to be a tug of war going on in terms of expectations. Are we heading into deflation or inflation over the uh, the near term? Because obviously, uh, uh, deflation then bonds would continue to survive, and 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 inflation then uh, the the uh, alternative investments, especially those in in commodities and real estate and those kinds of things, could do extremely well. Uh, what do you see on the horizon? What's your current um, crystal ball telling you you know and again i i could make a great argument either way i think we're more likely to see inflation than we Mm -hmm. are to see deflation i think the central banks are trying to create as much you know try to inflate our way out of these crises as much as possible so i think inflation is a more likely scenario but again, being a tactical investor from an investment standpoint, mm-hmm. I don't care because we'll react. If commodities are the place to be, we'll be there. If gold mm-hmm. is the place to be, silver, real estate, you know, wh- whatever it is, we'll either be in it or we won't, depending on whether it's moving up or it isn't. Okay, excellent. We've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, are there some key points, and I'm sure there are, that uh, especially from from your book and, and the way you operate, that we should cover uh, before we close? Because I may not have asked you some of the right questions. Well, I actually, I, I think you asked some really great questions. I think to kind of reiterate some of the, the major points, I think individual investors need to be focused purely on avoiding the large long-term loss. That Mm -hmm. is the key because there are really three types of markets. There are markets where a monkey throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal is going to make 20% a year. There Mm -hmm. are markets like 2002 and 2008 that, you know, no matter what you try to do in the stock market, you're going to have your head handed to you. Mm -hmm. And then there are markets like we've had the past two years. That or you know, this year more specifically, that's gone right. up, but that the risk of investing most of the year has just been immense. So I look mm-hmm. at these as kind of picking up pennies in front of a steamroller years. <laughs> so for the for the individual investor, you've really got to look at these years differently. So buy and hold treats every type of year the same. For right. the individual investor, the years when the market is going up so that, you know, it's so easy that a caveman could do it market. You know, those are the years, regardless of your age, regardless of your risk tolerance, those are the years you want to be in stocks because those are the years returns are easy to come by. Years like 2002 and 2008, ignore the don't worry, it'll come back, you're a long-term investor. You know, the average investor over 10 years, if they're lucky, has made nothing. So those are the years you want to be out of the market. Maybe you want some treasuries and gold. Maybe you just want some cash. You know, you might, well, you know, Matt, cash doesn't earn anything. Yeah, it doesn't, but it's better than losing 30%. Right, And then the years like this year, you've got to play close to the vest. Because, yeah, if you'd been in an index fund all year, you would have made a lot of money, but how much risk were you taking? And were the odds in your favor? Kind of like the guy who, you know, hits in a blackjack game. He's got a 17. The dealer's got a 5 showing. 
you decide to hit, you get a four, you get a 21, you win, and you think you made a good decision. Right. Well, no, you made a dumb decision. You just got sure. lucky. And if you made the same decision, you know, eight times out of ten, you're going to lose. Exactly. I was going to say just about just about that proportion because there are a lot more cards above the four. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, good analogy. Good analogy. And I think to some extent people do view it as, uh, well, just put my money on there and let it ride. Uh, as you as you said, that's that's been uh, beat very very uh, badly by those that do invest in some of these alternatives and are a little bit more tactical in their thinking. Now we should remind our listeners: how do they reach you? Um, so my email is mtuttle at tuttlewealth.com. Website is tuttlewealth.com. Those are usually the best ways. Okay, and I'll remind people, Matthew and Tuttle are symmetrical. Both have two T's in the middle, so easy to remember how to spell uh, Tuttle. And uh, Matthew, on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you for taking an hour out of your Monday and uh, probably even a little bit of preparation uh, last week to meet with us and explain alternative investments and talk about your book. And hopefully we've inspired a uh, number of listeners to read your book and look at diversifying their portfolio by using alternative investments the way the major endowments do and hopefully inspired them to be a little bit more nimble and not just uh, hold and hope. So I really appreciate your being on with us, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, let me take a few minutes to summarize some of the key points we covered today. Endowment funds like those at Harvard and Yale have outperformed dramatically the investment results, not just for a quarter or five years, but for very long horizons, partially due to their success in use of alternative investments. Now, most investors will never be able to take full advantage of all the options and and the cost structure that those large funds have, but that's not an excuse for poor portfolio performance. And I think uh, a term I would use from his book is think out of the box. Don't follow the sheep, which we've talked about. And if you look that up in the archive, you will find, I think, a very good show on the sheep. Thirdly, I would say that most financial advisors will not talk much about these alternative investments, partially because they don't, and we talked about this, earn a commission for recommending them, and also because they really haven't learned about them. Now, that comment might make you start thinking, well, what kind of education and background do most financial advisors have? Well, I'll tell you where the best place to get to get to know the answer to that question. The best place to find out is right here on the Wealth DNA Radio Show. So in the future, we were already planning a session with some of the experts on the educational programs for financial advisors, uh, and uh, one of those people at least will be a guest on a future show. Now, some alternative investments are only available to accredited investors. So one of our goals is to get each of our listeners to become millionaires, and that means over a million dollars in net uh, income-generating assets, or IGAs as we call them. We want that to happen as soon as possible. So you can take full advantage of each of these investment alternatives available. Uh, Another point that uh, came up is you have to be a lot more tactical and stay flexible. The old hold and hope just has underperformed the uh, nimble and those using these alternative investments. And another point that uh, I was very pleased to hear Matthew bring up was that the high risk now on investing in bonds. We've been in a 30-year, actually probably 35-year bull market for bonds just because interest rates have come down. How much lower do we go? It's going to be very hard to get under 0% because you're probably not going to pay a bank to hold your money. Now, I suspect for the last several weeks, you've been bombarded with uh, advertising about the upcoming holiday, 
and what to buy for your family and friends. I think you just picked up a good idea during the show. A copy of the book, How Harvard and Yale Beat the Market, by Matthew Tuttle, our guest today. Incidentally, the reviews by readers are absolutely excellent from Matthew Tuttle's book. I also have a suggestion that won't cost you a cent. But could you bring you closer to your family and friends? You can get them all together on Christmas Eve and join us right here on the Wealth DNA radio show. You see, most other radio shows on those days will rebroadcast some previously recorded show, but not us. We'll be here live. Helping you improve your Wealth DNA by sharing investment fundamentals and topics specifically picked to help our listeners become millionaires. So tune into this show every two weeks where we share the investment fundamentals and some great ideas like you heard today and inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be. So let me give you the specifics. The next Wealth DNA radio show is the fourth Monday of December, which will be our holiday show. And many more listeners will have that day off. That is Monday, December 24th. And we will be here at 9 o'clock Arizona time. Same place, same time. Now, I say that with full optimism that the Mayan calendar is wrong in predicting the end of the Earth in the next two weeks. So if you uh, do want to listen to some of the past shows that we mentioned or re-listen to this show, the archive is available on WealthDNA.us. Now, if you have some suggestions or questions, whether about alternative investments, other investment topics, or if you haven't received emails reminding you about this show, just send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Now, by the way, uh, this really caught my attention. The next show on the Boomer and the Debate Network at 11 this morning will be with Dr. Kevorkian on death and dying. Sound intriguing? When I hear the name Dr. Kevorkian, I sure got my attention going. I said, okay, this I need to listen to. Be sure to tune in at 11 a.m. right here on Boomer and the Babe Network. I plan to be there. Now, on the next few shows on Wealth DNA Radio, we'll be looking at many of the alternative investments we talked about today in more detail. Happy investing as you prepare for the holidays. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.